0: Good evening, listeners. It's the 10th of December 2017, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination.
1: I'm Lori Lutz. And I'm Kristen Finch. At Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these graduate students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State, or you're interested, in, and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out about all the cool things that are happening at Oregon State, you can check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. There you can find out about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
0: Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Tara Owens. Tara, hello, Hello. welcome. Um, Do you just want to start out by telling us a little bit about your
2: research? Sure. So I am a currently a master student in rangeland ecology and we have an umbrella project that this is my research is under and that's so a little background greater sage grouse were uh, candidates for listing under the endangered species act up until 2015 when u.s fish and wildlife determined that they did not need to be listed Uh, and so they're still many threats to the species and it's still a controversial species um they occur in 11 western states so all the way from wyoming to oregon and then uh from alberta and Saskatchewan south to colorado and and their population the decline is slowed uh some populations are coming back up some are not uh, there's a lot of threats from, mostly from habitat loss and degradation. So that can come from uh, energy development, development in the eastern part of their range. And then out here, it's wildfire and invasive grasses. But then there's this other big predation threat from ravens. And ravens will depredate nests. So they eat eggs. It's been documented. It's been videoed that they do this. And the raven population has just exploded, <laughs> particularly in the Great Basin. So, what has happened in Oregon is that um, the Baker Priority Area of Conservation, or PAC, that's what they're called, uh, that particular sage population has crashed in the last 10 years, um, and they're down to about 200 birds in that area. Uh, And last year, 2016, uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife did some abundance estimates for ravens and found that they had a really high abundance of ravens. So, what they want to do is they want to go in and lethally remove ravens, which, you know, we're killing one species to help another, which is a controversial thing to do in the first place. And so what part of my research is, is deciding if that is, if that helps. Like, is that to have any impact on the sage grouse population there? Uh, and not necessarily in terms of, you know, it's not a sustainable thing to do. You can't go in and kill ravens every year, but maybe that buys us enough time to figure out uh, what else can be done restoration-wise. So that's the big umbrella like, funding project for that, and that's where my, I'm going to stay on to do my PhD, and that's where that's going to be focused. But in the meantime, for my master's, I am really interested in looking at how this wildfire invasive grass issue um, is affecting sage-grouse survival and habitat selection and reproductive success in Oregon.
0: Yeah, so um, just to build on that a little bit, so how are invasive
2: grasses... Um, contributing to wildfires? That's a great question. So the main one we're concerned about is uh, cheatgrass. And it, it's uh, from Asia. So it's an annual grass. Um, so it dies back every year. So what has happened is it's a, it's a fine fuel. And it, it its phenology is faster and earlier than our native perennial bunch grasses. So there's a lot of it on the landscape. And then it dries out very early and it just that's that's just a track for fire so what happens? so now what happens is we have a fire comes through these are fire adapted landscapes this is a normal cycle for the for sagebrush um it's just usually a very long cycle so sagebrush can take anywhere from 35 to 100 years to come back to an area and what happens now is it burns this invasive cheatgrass comes in just creates more fuel for the fire and then now we have increased fire regimes in some areas you have fires that are burning every 10 years which is not enough time to have sagebrush come back and sage are sagebrush obligate species as their name suggests. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,
1: And so what would the invasive grass like changing the cycle of fire in this like uh, long term habitat or this long term restoring habitat? What what does this mean for sage grouse? What increased fire, increased ravens, potentially increased grass mm-hmm. like this? What what is this all really leading us to to think about sage grouse?
2: Uh, just mostly this habitat loss idea is that or or degradation in general. So they're they rely heavily on sagebrush to nest. So what we and they have show really high site fidelity to their seasonal habitats. So they won't use the same nest bush or nest bowl year after year but they'll nest within 4 800 meters of the same area so they'll pick like the same little drainage that they want to nest in every year so we have a fire that goes through there uh that bird is still gonna try and come back and nest in that area and either there's no sagebrush which means uh, we had a bird in my studies one of my study sites this year that nested under a bunch grass and that didn't go very well for her nest uh they're more exposed Obviously, to uh, not just avian predators, but also to mammalian predators, uh, coyotes and foxes and things like that. So you you're anticipating reduced nesting success from that. Uh, in addition, there's it's the cover; it's a cover thing. Like, and, uh, and then in the winter they eat entirely sagebrush. That's all they eat. So that's not necessarily right now a limiting factor for them, but it could be depending on how much burns so the increase then in fire frequency and severity Mm
1: -hmm. is kind of like making this delay in having good Mm -hmm.
2: bushes to nest in even more pronounced you're thinking yeah and then also so you'll see you'll see adult birds that'll try and go back and nest in that area but then you'll have yearlings that are like well this doesn't look great (laughs) so i'm gonna try and go over here but what I am interested in looking at is, are they just choosing the next available habitat and what kind of state is that habitat in, in comparison to an area that's intact?
0: So <sighs> your research right now, you're um, characterizing these different areas and in sort of determining what what that habitat looks like. Do you have an idea kind of what that what is ideal
2: I, there's a lot of literature on what is ideal, especially for nesting habitat. I know, I mean, honestly, nesting habitat's been hammered pretty hard. (laughs) It's an important factor, but I may actually start, I may actually focus on broodering habitat. That's something that hasn't been focused on as much, especially in this fire element and how it affects them. Uh, Female hens or females with broods, Congregate. I mean, all of them congregate in music habitats as the summer goes on, but they're particularly reliant on it because the chicks eat insects and they also eat forbs, so your flowering plants and things like that. And you're not going to find those in the dry plateaus of eastern Oregon. You got to go find a, a creek. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, what happens? What happens when a fire goes through there? As far as brood survival.
1: Can we break down a little bit just how, just a few more details on how you're doing this? So, uh, how you're cataloging the avian predators that Mm -hmm. are around, how you characterize the habitat, and then how you think that those, or and the how you monitor the grouse, Mm -hmm. and then how those three elements
2: work together to be your project. Sure. So we can start start with the grouse. So we're radio marking females. Uh, and we're using VHF radio callers and we also have access to, um, a pretty hefty number of GPS units. The Burns Paiute tribe has been very generous in loaning us, uh, a lot of GPS <laughs> units, <laughs> uh, which is really wonderful of them to do that. So go out at night, basically abduct a sage grouse cause that's, that's what <laughs> you're, you're out there in the middle of the night and you're just disorienting them with a the spotlight and throwing a net on them. That's all I can imagine. It's like it's like a UFO shows up, and then they, then they have a necklace and a bracelet, and, and they're not really sure what's going on. So, but then, so then we'll use, uh, I, if it's a GPS uplink, obviously we've just got the satellite data at the computer, and we can go out to a nest site and monitor it that way. If it's a VHF, then we use radio ground telemetry, monitor nests every three days during nesting season until she is gone, in which case then we'll go in and determine if that nest was, um, has failed or if it's hatched. And then from there, we'll follow her with brood, with her brood, uh, probably once a week, probably every ten days. Logistically, that's probably what's actually going to happen. And we'll uh, so we'll follow them, and that's where we get our our habitat markers from. Uh, still hashing out how we're going to characterize habitat. Uh, I don't want to do your traditional vegetation sampling. The surveys take at least an hour and a half. We just don't have the time or the manpower to do that. I'm more concerned about just characterizing the level of invasive grass infestation and other weeds. Uh, so a lot of our shrub cover and things like that, they're going to come from uh, satellite imagery, uh, and then from there, we so that's that's kind of how the habitat stuff is hashing out. As far as the point, uh, as far as the avian predators, we're doing point count sam- sampling. So that means that we have generated a bunch of random points inside of our sites. We'll go to those random points. We do a 10 minute survey where we're looking through binoculars and naked eye and then we count every raven, hawk, eagle, falcon that we see and get a distance for it. Uh, We surveyed those six times last year. So it's a continuous spread. We're gonna look at a time series. This is what gives us our abundance and density estimates for those avian predators. And so the random points uh, will be used to characterize the entire study area abundance and density, and then we also do those surveys at nest sites for sage grouse and brood sites, and even for just barren hens that are hanging out. And so we'll see if we can get a see if there's a difference between the density of avian predators where those sage grouse are choosing to to be compared to random sites. And because you would expect that uh, the
1: Fire recent fire sites, I guess you could call them, mm-hmm. are going to have a higher abundance of these avian predators because there's less uh, less shrubs for their prey, be them sage grouse mm-hmm. eggs or chicks,
2: and or um, other mammals mm-hmm. too, or okay. or anything that's running around. It'll right. just it'll be easier for them to hunt in those areas. Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: mm-hmm. and so then the the factors here, I you know i'm an ecologist myself so i always <laughs> think of all these interacting factors and all these variables that are hap- that are going on simultaneously um how when the um raven removal comes into play then how will these what is your expectation for uh, the highest threat to sage grouse after the raven removal or uh, or um so comparing non removal sites to places where the ravens have been removed. Mm -hmm. What are your expectations for and your main hypothesis for that part of it?
2: Our main hypothesis, there's some research out of Wyoming where they've done this already, where they saw an immediate response. They actually saw an immediate response, which was not what they were expecting uh, generally with all of these, obviously with wildfire and you have site fidelity, you're going to have some lag time before you start seeing any differences in the population. So they were expecting the same thing with the raven removal, and they actually saw that the very next breeding season, there was a uh, uptick in the number of males that were displaying on the leks, which suggested that there was a higher recruitment the year before from with chicks, so.
0: <laughs> and what, what's a lex?
2: A lek. <laughs> a lek. So, so greater sage-grouse are, uh, they are a polygynous species, so one male mates with many females. Uh, but they, so they're not like your normal songbird where they like have this monogamous part, monogamous partner. We'll put that in air quotes <laughs> and then they nest together and they have chicks. Um, the males go to an area that also they show high sight fidelity for, and that's called a lek. So it's, a uh, it's often a little more barren than the surrounding landscape. And so that's where they, if you ever YouTube greater sage grouse display and they're doing their big puffy chest pop in um, yes. and running around with their, their tail feather's all out. That's that's what a lek is. <laughs> so the females will come in and choose their male. And oftentimes it's just one or two males that are actually mating with all the females um, they've found. So. All
0: right. Very interesting. Kristen had mentioned some YouTube videos earlier to check out. Yes. When we were
1: getting ready for talking about your interview, I said, you have to look up these birds on YouTube. They're so funny. <laughs> They're <pretty silly. laughs> they do this uh, display where they puff out their yellow chests, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Their ear sacs. Yes. <laughs> well, so I'm, I'm curious to know what your history is with these types of projects and I guess how how did you get
2: involved and decide that you wanted to be a scientist? Uh, I have I'm one of those people that have known since I was a very small child that I wanted to at least work with animals I knew that uh, and I was always drawn to wildlife and uh, just always I mean I watched the Discovery Channel religiously when they still had cool documentaries on there, <laughs> and always was going to the zoo and was always outside, and just, uh, I thought animals were the coolest coolest thing ever, so uh, there was a little, you know, obviously wishy-washy in high school about what I really wanted to do, and I thought about being a veterinarian, um, and then opted not to go that route, so I ended up studying zoology at Humboldt State down in Arcata, and that was, that was a cool fit. I got a reasonable distance away from home (laughs) and got to play soccer and got to go to a really cool school that uh, has a great biology program and a great wildlife program too. So I didn't think I was going to work with birds. (laughs) I took mammology. I thought I was going to go tag grizzlies like every wildlife biologist thinks they're going to do when they graduate is we're going to go work with tigers and lions and zebras and that's what we're going to go do. And it's really cool (laughs) if you get to do that, but that's not usually what happens. And so I... Took an internship, came home, went to Bonneville Dam. So I worked on that project uh, for one season, and that was when they actually had the the culling permit for the California sea lions uh, in place. So my job was to watch them eat salmon and document all of their behavior. And basically my job was fulfilling all of the boxes that they had to check in order to euthanize the sea lion. Uh, that was a very controversial Project in and of itself. Uh, and then I just went to another controversial project and started working with spotted owls for <laughs> four years for the forest service. Uh, down went back down to Humboldt. And I, I had a great, just a great experience there. A lot of mentors um that really helped me along. So I really just went I went into the management side of things pretty much immediately and not really necessarily the science research side of stuff. And then needed to get out of Humboldt, needed to like go see there's other places outside of the Redwood Garden. <laughs> and uh, I went to Nevada and I worked for the U.S. Geological Survey on a research project with sage grouse um, doing a lot of very similar things that I'm doing with my research. Um, I was looking at uh, responses to geothermal energy production in Nevada. So what's very similar we go in, we abduct the sage tree house, we put radio collars on them, we track them through the whole breeding season, did these point counts as well with it. So that was that was great. And then uh, so that's kind of where things kind of t- took the turn on the more research oriented. Uh, came back to California, worked on a demography study with California spotted owl in the Sierras. Uh, then kind of decided maybe it was time to get a real job <laughs> and not be a temporary employee my entire life. And so I needed to go to grad school. Um, and yeah, I. Uh, venture to Germany for six months. That was an interesting experience. We can talk about that if we have time. Before Um. we open up the Germany story because I think we
1: definitely need to need to get there. Mm -hmm. I just saw so you keep you you were saying like a controversial project Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that maybe our audience has some idea of what you mean there but could you just uh, expand a little bit on like why some of these things are why some of these projects can be ethically uh, an ethical conundrum in a, in, a, in a manner of speaking.
2: Yeah. So for the, the Sea Lion Project was, it was, it was difficult. Um, and I'm not by any means a history expert on the Sea Lion salmon debate. So I'm just throwing that out there for all you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Please take what I'm saying. Ta- this is, this is from my six month experience working there is that uh, it's kind of, similar to what we're doing with ravens like the biologists don't want to kill the sea lions it's not something that you know we're out doing but they were taking you know they they are camping out at the dam there and they're eating the salmon when they come through which uh, salmon are the only endangered species that we actually do harvest so there's a big economic push for that so from an animal rights perspective you're killing one species to save another that doesn't make any sense (laughs) from a management perspective it's the, sta- the sustainability of can you keep this practice up? Is this going to continue to work? Uh, are, are the sea lions just going to keep coming back in the same numbers every year, even if we do cull a few of them? Uh, you've got the fishermen who obviously want their salmon, and they want lots of salmon, and we want to keep protecting those guys. So, yeah, it gets into this weird, tricky thing, especially with the sea, lion- the sea lions are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Um, California's sea lions did great, and they bounced back. They have huge numbers now, which is wonderful, but it's, it's that level of, um, intensive management that you're looking at. Uh, and like I said, when you get to this point where you are, uh, you're killing one species to save another, uh, I left the forest service right when they were starting to do the pilot studies, uh, where they're shooting barred owls to because the barred owls are out competing spotter owls. And that is also a weird gray area of whether a barred owl is really a non-native or an invasive species, they aren't native to the west Western U.S., but they made their way over here from the Eastern U.S. Nobody just like went and released a barred owl; they mm-hmm. just made their way over here, and and they're cousins. And so you're like, well, that's that's just evolution, right? You're just <laughs> that's that's the one, one's out competing the other. That just happens. But when you have a species like the spotted owl, which is a whole ball of its own controversy back when it was listed and continues to still be. Uh, and you've invested a lot of time and money and effort in trying to save the species. You're going to do everything that you can to, to do that. <laughs>
1: Thank you for explaining that. I think I should mention that we have had an animal or, um, uh, interspecies ethics person on the show in the past and just give a plug for his show. His name is Bjorn Christ- Christensen and you can find his blog posts on blogs.oregonstate.edu and, um, If you're interested in interspecies justice and want to have a conversation with him, he actually invites that and has his email there. So just Mm -hmm. to push for that. But Tara, I would I want to ask you then as a follow up, um, although these are like controversial projects that you found yourself um, found yourself involved with, what's the push for you in like what's important about like further exploring these controversial uh, solutions that um, make them still worth doing, even though it's kind of an ethical dilemma for a lot of people, and there are people on different sides of the fence and the
2: debate. Uh, I think it's just, we have to, we're coming into a time where we're gonna be faced with some really different conservation issues coming in with climate change and invasive species, and human expansion, and every... And so, we got to be willing to think outside the box a little bit and try things that maybe are not not what everybody wants to do. And I think it's important with what we're doing is we're testing this out. Like, is this... I think that's a really important part is to not just go in and, well, we're going to try this, and we're just going to keep doing it because we think it's going to work, but actually being able to assess whether it really is working and whether it's a solution that we can use. Uh, short-term solutions, you know, we don't like band-aids, but if we can put a band-aid on it for a minute <laughs> until we can address these bigger habitat issues uh, and these interact, especially in the, in the the Baker population, I mean, there's a lot of, it's not just the Ravens. There's a lot of other stuff going on up there. And so having the ability to reduce that predation pressure for a couple of years while, we work on weed control stat- strategies and wildfire prevention and uh, reducing human subsidies that the Ravens use. That's why they're doing so well. They they eat roadkill. They eat all of our trash. They nest on our power lines and they nest in our old buildings and they're incredibly smart and they're very good at what they do and it sucks that we have to kill them for being awesome <laughs> at being animals. <laughs> so yeah, I just like I said we're going to we're gonna be faced with some really interesting conservation issues here. And and I'm not saying in like 20 years, I'm saying like in a couple of years, (laughs) we're already seeing it, so yeah, I think.
0: Well, I think it's really interesting how, you know, your work is really helping to make more informed decisions and really to think through these processes before um, doing something that could, you Mm -hmm. know, or throwing a lot of money at something that could really end up doing harm.
2: Right. And I just, that comes from, I spent so long working on the management side of things. And I mean, the government is actually, well, those agencies have made a turn and they're looking at ecological registration and bigger things. And they're not just trying, Forest Service is not just trying to get board feet out and timber anymore. They're trying to make healthy landscape decisions and yeah, trying to pinpoint those in the right direction. <laughs>
0: Well, that is definitely hopeful. Um, So you had mentioned this, um, how you originally started graduate school in Mm -hmm. Germany. And um, we would love to hear a little bit more about uh, that that part of your graduate school pursuit.
2: So I decided last summer, so 2016, that it was time to go to grad school. Unfortunately, by 2016, my GREs that I had taken in 2008 (laughs) were a little old, (laughs) and uh, I I wasn't necessarily very prepared to retake those, also just the daunting cost of going to grad school, Um, not sure if I'm going to receive an assistantship or not, and... I was looking at other avenues and the DAAD program popped up, which is a German exchange, although you're not affiliated with an American university. It's just kind of more of a search engine avenue to explore what international programs Germany has as uh, as graduate programs. So I found uh, a master's program in Freiburg, Germany that was forestry, one that had a wildlife um, kind of like concentration to it and thought that was great because 160 US dollars for tuition every semester sounds fantastic <laughs> and uh it's when you're a student over there it's uh you can get work permits and things like that and actually the cost of living is significantly less as long as you're not a full-fledged adult like I was where I had like a car payment at home and credit cards and things but if you're just just going over there with and you have a pretty clean slate as far as that's concerned uh it's very easy to live um very affordable so i was there i ended up only doing one term there uh and it wasn't quite a right fit for me um i felt like there, i felt like the masters program wasn't quite as rigorous as i was expecting for a wildlife program and you know they have a different system of how they do things most of the people in my most of the people in my masters program that were germans or european students were 22, 23, they, like, did their bachelors, took a year off, and then just went straight into grad school. Uh, So as somebody who already had seven field seasons at that point and it worked a lot, it wasn't quite what I was looking for. Uh, But I think if you're an undergrad right now and you're looking for a more affordable way, they actually increased the tuition for non-EU students to a whole, like, $1,800 a semester, (laughs) which was a huge deal over there. That was a really big deal. They did that, but, and just in comparison to what American universities cost. uh, I think think living in another country is a really great idea. Uh, Experiencing that culture, experiencing a different way. For me, like wildlife management is completely different in Germany than it is in the US. And that was cool to learn about. So if you're an undergrad, I would suggest like going straight to Europe or taking a year off uh and that I think that's a really good pursuit for most people. So but,
1: what about it? So you uh you're in this German program and and you kind of had this serendipitous uh <laughs> journey to where you are now. Mm-hmm. So uh h- what how did that really start to come about where you uh decided to come to Oregon State instead?
2: Well, I at that point I realized that I was a lot more prepared for a PhD program than I thought I was prior to going to Germany and then being in school again. So my, what my plan was, is that I was gonna come home for spring break and then I was gonna go back for my second semester and I was going to apply for PhD assistantships during that summer. And it was like, if I get one, cool, I start in the fall. If I don't, I'm halfway done with my program here. (laughs) It's still a master's program where we can still just finish the program here and then go home. And right before I came home for break, About a week before, lo and behold, Dr. John Dinkins posts this sage-grouse assistantship for Oregon State. And I said I'm from Vancouver, Washington, so not very far away. Time to come home. Applied for it, thinking there's no way I'm going to get the first one I apply for. Absolutely no way. And while I was home, after some back-and-forth conversations and a couple of interviews and offering it to somebody else, and then he called me about... 10 days before I was supposed to get on my plane to go back and said, it's yours. Can you be here in a week? <laughs> and I was down in Southern California at the time. So yeah, it was kind of my whole life was like already flipped on its head. Cause I was living in another country and then I got like re flipped and yeah, it was crazy, but I am, I'm very happy with my decision and to come to, I've had a wonderful experience here and I think I, I made the right choice.
1: <laughs> so you've now completed your eighth, Field season overall, seventh uh-huh. or first field season um, at Oregon State. Mm-hmm. And so what, what do you think uh, the future holds for you after
2: a master's and a PhD? Mm-hmm. crazy lady. <laughs> right, I know. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to say no when you're funded for four, four or five years. Yeah, there you uh, go. Um, afterwards, so I would like to I got a lot of avenues that I would like to go down. Ideally, I'd like to be a research head for particular government institution um, would be great. Uh, I also just better informed management decisions. i like I like what I'm seeing with what's happening here and trying to be that liaison between scientists and managers. That's land managers that's not. Sometimes those are mutually exclusive people (laughs) and trying to be a part of that and better policy decisions and things like that. So I would, yeah, either be a research head or influence policy and go either way. (laughs) Or maybe a little bit of both. A little bit of Uh, both. Yeah. A little bit of both.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, we're coming around to the to the end of our time uh, with Tara here, Tara, but um, we have two traditions that we do on Inspiration Dissemination and the first is to ask you for advice.
0: Mm.
1: Advice for someone who might be thinking about following in your footsteps or
2: doing something similar or just general life advice for everyone. Uh, Somebody, if we're talking about an undergrad trying to follow kind of what I did, I would definitely, excuse me, encourage you to, you gotta put yourself out there, like, found that I found that out. Like you need to go ask questions. You got to go find grad students that are doing projects that maybe you're just like half interested in and you just want the field experience and you want to see what that process is about. Uh, finding internships. Uh, I know that can be hard because those are usually unpaid or a very low stipend, but that's a really important thing to do. Uh, and definitely I mean, I know a lot of people who would have just done, like, gone straight, gotten straight to grad school at undergrad, and if you can do that, great, uh, but I would recommend taking a couple of years off and get out there and go be a technician or a wildlife biologist or whatever you're, if you're in my field, that's what I would tell you to go do. <laughs> get out, go see the country, go do something, go get some, some dirt under your nails and some, some experience before kind of coming back yep. to, to do that. Because I think I would have been, if I would have actually gone to grad school straight out, I think I would have burned out. I was I was pretty tired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> always,
1: always good advice. And what's, what's our second tradition, Lori?
0: And our second tradition is um, we ask our guests to um, come up with a song. And we will be playing that song. But first, do you want to tell us a little bit about the song you chose and why you chose it? Sure.
2: So we're going to go with some nice nice Taylor Swift, uh, Shake It Off. And this is actually just... To my owl crew from last year, uh, 2016, we uh, we had Taylor Swift Tuesdays. They mm. actually already had the Taylor Swift Tuesday tradition, <laughs> but I like came in and so I was just <laughs> part of that. So yeah, Tuesdays Tuesdays were were T Swift days. We put it on in the truck on our way out of the barracks. <laughs> Great, yeah, love
0: it. And,
2: him. and generally, <laughs> all that all the night work, you gotta you gotta have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> Stay asleep. awake, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, here is "Shake It Off." Oh, oh, I um, didn't see
0: something
2: yeah, right yeah. Before we left, because I didn't, I did mention John. He's my advisor. He's oh. awesome. But Lindsay Perry, who's the other PhD student on this project, who I have just apparently completely neglected to mention in the oh. last thirty <laughs> minutes and on the blog post. But yes, so she's also working on this project, and maybe I can talk her into coming on this right so about her side of things we'll have our
1: our ears and eyes out for <laughs> Lindsay perry from uh animal and rangeland sciences <laughs> hopefully we can get her get her on and yes. then have a conversation with tara and Lindsay.
0: that would be fantastic yes. well tara thank you so much for being here we've really enjoyed um learning about your work and we hope our listeners
2: have too uh, thanks for having me on guys yeah yep.
1: and this is a inspiration dissemination on kbvr corvallis we're on every sunday at 7pm and next week we'll be with a new graduate student so keep listening out there beeves all right here is shake it off by taylor
2: swift i say i'm too late got nothing